things first. This is about truth telling. I have no agenda. Zero. I always have questions. What's the problem? That's just who I am. This is what no mercy is all about. Hey, here I come. You can book it. Ah. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Breath taking a move that I make. I give it everything I got. Cause that what it takes. I push the limit till it break. The heart of the brave. The soul of a legend with the will to be great. Hold up. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the latest edition of the Stephen A. Smith Show, coming at you at the very least every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday over the digital airwaves of YouTube. As always, I'm thankful to be in my studios, thanks to our official studio sponsor, FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel is the official sports betting company of the Stephen A. Smith Show. Please make sure to like and follow the Stephen A. Smith Show on YouTube. Just click the bell to get notified of all of our new content, please. And be sure to pick up a copy of my New York Times bestseller, Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. You know... <clears throat> Like I told you before, everybody knows I'm synonymous with sports, but I'd like to believe that I care about more than that and I'm interested in helping make a difference in the, levy, in the little small ways that I can. And one of the ways that I try to do that is talking to people uh, that are really, really connected to the political, political apparatus that essentially governs this country. Those who are connected, those who know people who are connected, those who are elected officials, et cetera, et cetera. They're incredibly important uh, to what's transpiring in this nation and the kind of things that are going to contribute to making a difference. One of the things that I pride myself on doing is talking to people from all sides of the aisle, both sides of the aisle. I say all sides because I interviewed Cornell West a few weeks ago and he's an independent. Obviously, you've got the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, I'm a registered independent, although I primarily lean towards voting Democratic. I'm not beyond voting for a Republican. It depends on the issues. It depends on it depends on their position on the issues. And it depends on their statesmanship and a willingness, a willingness to govern all of America, not just the parts that that elected them and support them. So I'm very, very big on that. And. Obviously, I always want to make sure that everybody knows that on this platform, I'm going to be fair minded to everybody and I'm going to listen to what everybody has to say. I'm not trying to engage in any gotcha moments. I'm not trying to position myself to catch somebody in whatever level of, of lies or whatever it is that they've engaged in. My objective is to ask the questions that I think people want to hear, to hear their responses for the record and to let the people, my audience, be the judge of what they hear. I am not an aficionado. I'm just a concerned citizen at the end of the day that wants to do my part to help this nation be a better place. That's really, really what it comes down to. And one of the people that I've been interested in talking to for quite some time is a guy who is a former mayor of Newark, New Jersey, a former council councilman. He's now a United States senator. He's a former presidential candidate. Um, he's somebody that's highly educated, very, very bright, uh, very astute um, and very passionate about a lot of issues that he cares about and that he thinks this nation should care about. So why not hear his perspective? Um, I've listened to both sides of the aisle and I'm not going to change. And I can't wait to talk to my next guest. He is the senator from New the state of New Jersey. His name is Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker. He's up next with Stephen A. 
right here on the Stephen A. Smith Show. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Please welcome the senator himself. Senator Cory Booker. How are you, sir? How's everything going? It is going really well. We claim you, man. You're, you're a Jersey boy now. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. How much time do you actually get to spend in Jersey these days? I mean, I don't know if people understand, you know, the schedule of a United States senator. Break that down for us. I would say about a third of my time is spent in Jersey. Sometimes, obviously, holidays and things like that, I get longer. But, you know, I came down on the train this on a Monday night. That's tonight. Mm-hmm. And uh, then head back usually on a Thursday evening, but then sometimes I'm on the road traveling for, you know, you name it, going to the Middle East or going to Africa, or depending on what my challenges are. So uh, I, I love my state. I love Newark. And, and so going home, sleeping in your own bed, that's one of my favorite things to do. Before you were a senator, you were a city council member, if I remember correctly. Obviously, the former mayor of Newark, New Jersey, did an outstanding job, by the way, as mayor uh, of, of Newark, New Jersey. How much do you miss it? How much do you miss being a mayor compared to being a senator? You know, it's it's it, being an executive is a great thing when you you are captain of the ship and the buck stops with you. It's a lot different than being a, a legislator. Uh, so I love my job. I I, I I love hugging on Newarkers for giving me that chance. Best years of my life in many ways. But now the state gives me a chance to be a, sen- a senator. Now, I'm I'm one of 100 in this body and you got a whole Congress, 535 of us. Uh, it's a different role, a different way uh, of of fighting for change, but you get singles and doubles all the time, and sometimes you get grand slams. So mm. uh, for me, look, I'm I'm a guy who who grew up. Uh, my parents literally had to get a white couple to pose as them to uh, buy the house I grew up in in the northern part of the state. We were the first black family to integrate this town, uh, and as my father said, you know. You know, boy, you know, don't walk around this house like you hit a triple. You were born on third base compared wow. to my dad. And he grew up in North Carolina and, you know, segregated South uh, uh, poor. He used to say we couldn't afford to be poor. Boy, we were just po, P.O. Couldn't afford the other two letters. <laughs> uh, and, and, and for him to raise his get become the first African-American hired by IBM. He after he graduated from North Carolina Central, his HBCU, my mom graduated from Fisk, her HBCU. They come to uh, D.C. where they just happenstance move into the same building, mm-hmm. um, uh, marry here. Then, the, then thanks to the Urban League, they were fighting to get companies to hire their first blacks ever. Um, and so my dad became the first black salesman for this company. That company then became IBM's first black salesman in the entire you know Virginia, D.C., Maryland area, and just crushed it. You give qualified African Americans a chance to compete. Uh, and they they thrived, became their top 5% of their global salesman, gets this promotion up to New Jersey. My mm-hmm. mom and him were like, best public schools. We don't care. They happen right. to be a lot of them in, in white neighborhoods, fought this big fight. Literally, when they went on the closing, the white couple didn't show up. My dad didn't, and the lawyer said, you denied me the house. Mm. Uh, uh, you were willing to sell it to the white couple. Uh, we got you in this sting. The real estate agent punched my dad's lawyer in the face, put <laughs> a picture on my dad. Right. And uh, and, you know, before you knew it, where, as my father used to call us, uh, the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. So now picture wow. this. I am 18 years old. After all that to get in, I'm president of my class, honor society, 
all American high school football player could write my that's right anywhere I want to go. And my dad's still looking at me like, man, you know, you still got a lot to prove. And, and even then, I, you know, I go out and play ball football at Stanford, do my master's there, get a Rose scholarship, come back to Yale Law School. My dad looks at me, he goes, boy, you got more degrees in the month of July, but you ain't high. <laughs> <laughs> life, life ain't about the degrees you get. It's about the right. service you give. And so right. my mom challenged me. She said, she said, you could do anything you want. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And I had never thought about that. She goes, you are at the point in your life, you got all this, you know, uh, uh, experience and, and opportunity. What's your craziest dream for your life? And at that point in my life, I had a hero, a guy named Jeffrey Canada, who started mm -hmm. the Harlem Children's Zone. Okay. He was a guy, if you read his really great, still holds, I read it again as a senator. Uh, it's a, a thin book called Fist, Stick, Knife, Gun. Where mm -hmm. He makes himself very vulnerable. He talks about the the fear of violence and how, why kids bringing weapons to school and all the challenges growing up. And yet at the end of the book, he made this decision to move into a tough neighborhood in Harlem and start this nonprofit with the people. And it's now grown to be this extraordinary organization. So I said, that's, he is who I would be when I grow up. And so I decided I would move into the toughest neighborhood I could find in Newark, New Jersey, and just start my legal organization. I was going to start representing people. And I moved onto this street. I'm telling you, at least my perception, it was just off the chain, one mm -hmm. of the more violent sections of, of the city and one of the more violent neighborhoods in the, in the state at the time. A lot of public housing around me. But I suddenly realized you don't mistake wealth with worth because I may have gotten my BA from Stanford, but I got my PhD on the streets of Newark from some of the best community leaders who saw things in me I didn't see in myself took me under their wing, started taking on the slumlords in the community, having a lot of success, and then they changed my life. Ms. Virginia Jones, Mr. Frank, Mr. Frank Hutchins, a whole bunch of these right. leaders looked at me and said, you think you want to start a nonprofit here? We want you to run for city council. And I'm like, I'm not into being a politician. I, I, this good, I thought I was a good lawyer. I'm doing, I'm really, no. You, are you here for your own ambitions or are you here to do what the people want you to do? The next thing you know, they have got me in running against the city machine, against a guy 40 years older than me, and somehow we upset them. And I become the youngest person ever elected in New York City government. And the rest is sort of, you know it now. It's, 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 you know, it is all about, for me, remembering who put me in this game. Okay. And what, in fact, look, if you, you can see this, that's the map. I see it. That was the map when I ran for city council in 1997. That was hanging in the the headquarters there. I, I keep it there to never forget why I got into uh, public service and elected and elected office. And mm -hmm. I that's how you know, I'm the only United States senator that lives in a you know majority black city in a black commute neighborhood and and that's still you know struggling around the poverty line. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm proud when I go home and see all the transformative changes: new schools, new parks, uh, new supermarkets. All the things we did together, new housing, affordable housing, we did together. Mm -hmm. And even the stuff I work on now, mm. you know, criminal justice reform, big bill. You've always been big on criminal justice reform. Yeah. You've been on that forever. Yeah. No question. Liberating thousands of people from, from unjust incarceration, fighting for environmental justice, you know, mm -hmm. to be a part, to get the Biden administration partner with us, to get every lead pipe out of the ground in the United States of America so children have better access to clean water. Mm -hmm. 
you know, everything that we work on, well, we, we hold it back to this barometer. You know, we got the child tax credit expanded, cut p- child poverty in half for the year we got it done. Uh, uh, got millions of dollars, not just into Newark, but hundreds of millions of dollars. Over almost 90% of New Jersey families with mm-hmm. children got a little bit more money back on their taxes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I try to fight for the things that align with that 28-year-old kid who had a great Afro who got into right. it because he wanted to make a difference in neighborhoods like this. Senator Booker, all of those things are just phenomenal. And not only would anyone not question your record, they wouldn't question your heart. They know it's in the right place. When we look at the climate, the political climate that exists today, however, it seems to be the antithesis of everything you represent, everything you hope for, everything you would want to see where your interest lies, which is obviously for the betterment of the community, particularly the desolate and disenfranchised. That doesn't appear to be the case when we look at folks on Capitol Hill. That's from a bird's eye view of the average American citizen. As somebody who's in Capitol Hill, participating in that political, you know, just 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 the political apparatus that exists right now. How would you describe the nation's capital in the year 2023? Well, look, there there is a lot of cynicism about politics. I, I shared it before I got in. <laughs> uh, and and a lot of it is justified. We have a we have a political system that is moneyed interests. You know, the lobbyists down here. It's the reason why I gave up taking corporate PAC money and you know, pharma, oil, all that stuff. I try to, I say no more for me, but, right. but it's, 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 it's understandable that there's cynicism about a system where you see so much conflict, so much politics and the people's agenda doesn't seem to be um, often the one that is winning. I, I say that all to say this, I, I will stipulate to all those frustrations. Okay. But I I got to serve down here with guys like John Lewis, you know, you want to talk about heroic human beings who was a congressperson in this fight. And what he would tell you is that nothing worthwhile is easy. That being a congressperson, or in my case, a senator, if you stay focused on the people, you can deliver things. But more importantly, he would tell you is that, you know, at the end of the day, what is the best advantage towards people who don't want anything to get done or only the corporate interest to be served. The best thing that serves that is cynicism is people having this nihilistic surrender to what is thinking that they have no agency or, or power that real leadership. And again, this is the John Lewis model is not for people to look at me. Oh, I'm your Senator. Uh, follow me. No real leadership is about helping people to understand that they are the leaders that we're looking for, that they have agency and they have power. And if you look at American history, you have to first accept the fact that American history, as James Baldwin wrote in The Fire Next Time, is a perpetual testimony to the achievement of impossible things. Mm-hmm. And, and second, you have to understand that the real change we fight for doesn't come from Washington. It comes to Washington. Can I interject right there? Can I interject right there? It makes perfect sense. I believe you. There's no doubt that you're right. The problem is 
as an average American citizen out here, particularly the ones that you care about. And it's not to imply that you don't care about all, but certainly those that are at a disadvantage and could use some assistance. You, you fight for the little man every day, the, the figurative little man every day and woman, obviously. You know good and well, Senator Booker, that most folks don't have the time. And in this day and age, the energy yeah. to take the bull by the horn and do exactly what you and others are proposing they do. They elect folks like you to do it for them. Right. How do you handle that? I, I, I Listen, man, and I handle it well, because when we vote, we win. I, 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 I just had a meeting in this office a little while back with uh, uh, Raphael Warnock. OK, there's only yes, I know black people. Senator for Georgia. Yeah. Senator for Georgia. Senator yeah. for Georgia. I'm the fourth black person popularly elected in the United States history. Mm. Raphael Warnock is like number 11. Right. And he and and think about this, the, what used to be the cradle of the Confederacy. Uh, um, uh, uh, Georgia sends a black man and a Jewish man to represent them. in con- Why? Because there were record turnouts, because folks in Savannah, folks in Atlanta came out at record numbers. And what did that enable us to do? As soon as the two of them were elected and we knew we had the majority in the Senate by one vote. We, I, me, Sherrod Brown, a bunch of us reached out to the president of the United States and said, you need to expand your agenda and start looking at real big wins for economic justice, got the child tax credit. Uh, for uh, for healthcare expansion, we were able to do serious reduction in prescription drug prices for things like, like uh, uh, diabetes, um, insulin costs, for, okay. for incredible, as I already told you, efforts when to help black farmers, to help get uh, lead pipes out of the ground. We have done so much by one vote in the Senate (laughs) uh, this time, the biggest infrastructure bill, expanding broadband in places in in Georgia that that didn't have it before, roads, bridges, union jobs, so much so because those two people were elected in a city that was tight, but they came out to vote in communities there. So what happens often is the most common way people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. And often they don't realize it just takes a little bit of engagement. You are in a democracy. The cost of democracy is is participation. The biggest threat to democracy is apathy. Right. Understanding. And by the way, for, for, for black folks in particular, let's just talk about black folks for a second. Okay. There has been a concerted effort from, from vicious violence to stop black people from voting in every generation of America. Mm-hmm. And we know the civil rights movement. We just came off the anniversary of the, the little four black girls dying in Birmingham. We know John Lewis got his, got his head cracked open marching. Selma, but even, yes. Now, but even now, mm-hmm. think, about, think about felony disenfranchisement. This decision that and and by the way, you trace back a lot of the states have passed a law that says you can't vote if you have a criminal conviction. That a lot of it was an overt attack saying, well, wait a minute, let's create black codes. And then when black people break these laws, we're going to then take away their right to vote. So it has its history in our racist past to try to stop black people from voting. And now you come with mass incarceration. And, you, you know, I just one of my meetings tonight was about marijuana uh, uh, okay. descheduling. Just enforcement of marijuana laws in America, people don't understand this, Blacks are about four times more likely, no difference in usage, no difference in selling, 
but blacks are four times more likely to get incarcerated or even just arrested for losing their voting rights at an astonishing levels. And so black disenfranchisement, voter disen felony disenfranchisement from voting is so dramatic. It's a scheme that has helped to get black people not to vote. You have some counties in America because of mm -hmm. felony disenfranchisement, one out of four black people can't vote because they've been in trouble with the law. And, and that's the crazy thing. No difference in, in criminality, but an over-criminalized criminal justice system. So if you understand how much people are trying to take away your vote, passing laws, making it harder for you to vote, in the state of Texas, it takes a black person about 40 to 50 minutes longer to vote. Now you're that mm -hmm. busy person with mm -hmm. a single mother, with, with, with a struggling, time is money, and, and you're coming off from work, you got to feed the kids, I got to run by my polling place. And in my community, because of the laws, there are longer lines at the polls. That's, that is a way to, to stop you from voting. And so I just tell folks all the time, if, if your vote didn't matter, if your engagement didn't matter, they would not have been trying so hard for so long to stop you from voting. But the best way they stop people from voting is to make them think that they can't make a difference. Yeah, but what but what role does the Democratic Party play in that? And here's where I'm at. I'm a registered independent who votes. I, the only Republican I've ever voted for, I will tell you right now, the only Republican I've ever voted for in my life was Chris Christie. And that's because I was not a fan of Corzine. That is it. I voted Democrat every other way. I'm a proud Obama voter. No doubt about it. Damn it. If I was living in New Jersey, I would have voted for you. OK, let's be very clear about that. But Senator Brooke, I got to ask you this question, though. When I think about the Democratic Party and the case that you just made about some of the things that are transpiring, when we listen to the Democratic Party far more often than not, we hear about we hear about immigration. We hear about the Republicans and what they're doing wrong with the with the border walls and what have you. And there's a focus on that. We hear about transgender issues and stuff like that. You hear about these things, not enough about the kind of things that you're pointing to. I'm not saying we don't hear it at all, but we certainly don't hear it and have it in our face, inundated in our ears, the way in terms of the issues that you just brought up compared to some of these other issues. What do you say to that? I, I, look, the, the, what is the Democratic Party? It's, you know, again, right. 70 plus million people voted for the party. But for me, it's the issues. My grandfather, my grandfather was born a Republican, raised a Republican. He switched to the Democratic Party uh, in, in the time of FDR, who was a union organizer for the United Auto Workers, and went out and converted to the day he died. He bragged about the 14 districts. I'm like, Granddad, why are you a Democrat? Well, it's because the party is Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, party of civil rights, party of unions and laborers and labor rights. He would go on this whole, whole diatribe about all the things, but he would always tell me, I'm a black man in America. I'm with the party, but I'm I'm not with the party because of some tribalism. I'm with it because of the issues. And he would tell me, educate yourself on the issues and vote for what makes sense for your communities. And so mm -hmm. for me, this is not complicated. I don't demonize Republicans. No party has a monopoly on the truth. And I'm tired of the tribalism in our country. We have too much partisanship it's too much. for partisanship's sake. I, I remember one study I read about, like, they took an arcane policy issue and said it was a Democratic idea. And immediately when they pulled it, of course, 80, 90 percent of Republicans were against it. They took the same idea and said it was a Republican idea. And immediately all the Democrats were against it. We mm -hmm. got to cut that stuff out. We as Americans agree far more than the media and other interested parties want to tell us. 
And I still remember I'm running for a town hall stage when I ran for president. And this guy looks at me and big guy looked like he was a linebacker for Iowa State. I'm a former tight end from Stanford. And the guy's like, dude, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face. <laughs> and I look at him and I go, dude, that's a felony, man. That's, that's a right. felony. And I teased him. I jumped up on the stage and said, let me keep joking with this, brother. That's the problem. We have a nation that's tearing itself apart where our definition of activism has become who we hate and not what we want to build. Mm. You think Martin Luther King and all those marches in Birmingham against Bull Connor brought bigger dogs and bigger fire hoses to double down on the darkness and the violence? No. Do you think it was all about hating Bull Connor? No. That what they knew through their artistry of activism, that the challenge was to wake up all the people sitting on the sidelines that weren't engaged, as King said. And it holds true today. What we have to repent for is not just the violent actions and vitriolic words of the bad people, but the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. I'm not in this game because I hate Republicans. I'm friends with Chris Christie, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm in this game because when I go home and I'm walking my neighborhood, I believe that every child has a right to clean air, clean water, and clean soil. And there is toxins all over this country. More rural places. To whatever. I believe every child should have a great public education like I did. And my parents were willing to fight, literally, a Doberman pincher and a guy punching them to get a great public education. Heck, I I'm crazy enough to believe that if you're sick in America, you shouldn't have to file bankruptcy to afford your, your health care. Mm. I'm a big believer that entrepreneurs is what makes this country great. Right. And that we should be a nation that supports people who are risking capital and starting businesses, not the mega billion corporations that have all the tax breaks. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh -huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Like the differences between the party right now Brother, that's not hard. In fact, for me right now, I I'm I don't I'm wishing the old Republican Party that was running people like Mitt Romney for president would come back. You want to know the Republican <laughs> you Party now? The Republican Party is giving sanctuary to people who don't believe Joe Biden is actually the president. Mm. It is giving sanctuary and defense to people who tried to create a revolution but, and stormed our capital. But you do know they would retort by saying the Democrats are giving, saying, uh, letting certain cities become sanctuary cities and allowing and, uh, and allowing it to be flooded with illegal immigrants and things of that nature. That would be their retort to exactly what you just said. And I'm and saying I, you do know say, that. I, and I would say that is within the bounds of fighting for in, in the in the realm of what we should be debating and having dialogue about in America, immigration policy. Because remember, they were saying this when they were letting the Italians and the Irish and the Polish in. They were saying, oh, you're turning, the, the Southern Europe people are taking, the Catholic churches. These are, these are arguments we've been having for a long time. But when you shift to actually start to try to tear down our democratic institutions, I never thought that the peaceful transfer of power, that, that I would literally be sitting in my job as a United States Senate I never thought this. This is a true story. Me and um, Mark Kelly, great guy from New Jersey originally. He's a NASA yeah. astronaut, used to land planes. He and I literally had to have a conversation about, like, we got a whole bunch of older senators that they're trying to escape 
The, the police are trying to find a, a way to get them out so they won't be hurt, injured, killed by the mob. And I look at Mark and Mark and I say, we better get six. Let's be the last guys to leave this floor to protect them just in case they break through. I literally thought on the United States floor, I might have to throw down and fight my way out. Wow. And then when I get back to this office, this is where after all of us to unclose location, I talk myself up here. I, a United States senator barricades themselves into their office, barricades myself, put chairs against that door, turn on this TV here. And the first sign I see, I, I can't, my father died about 10 years ago, almost to the day. And the first thing I did is I thought about him. Because the first symbol I saw when that TV went on, and I don't know whose coverage it was, CNN or whatever, okay. was a man holding a Confederate flag just feet from where I sat. Mm. The, the, the Confederacy that did try during the Civil War to make a run to take our capital rebuffed. A lot of the, the Gettys, Battle of Gettysburg was about that. And here they finally took over the capital and were waving with defiance symbols of hatred and racism. And then I have to listen today to people defending those folks who had Camp Auschwitz T-shirts. So, so I remember I was on a, I was on a show on, a, on one of these uh, Sunday morning shows, or I can't remember if it was actually Sunday morning, but I was on one of these national correspondents and they had a person radio in and off camera. I said, hey, man, how can you let him get away with that lie? Like he used a data point that I said, that's wrong. You know, that's wrong. And, and this is a, a well-known CNN or whatever the yep. people should looks at me and goes, I grade on a curve. Do you support democracy or not? <laughs> and, yeah. and that's the crazy thing. We, we have a party right now that is being controlled in many ways by folks who, who have given into this idea that you win at any costs, even if that's violence, even if that's undermining democratic institutions, and so right now, I'm just trying to, I want to preserve democracy. Mm -hmm. It's an imperfect democracy, money, the way we draw district lines. There's a lot of things that need to reform about our democracy. But there's been too much blood spread to try to make this democracy a more perfect union. Now, I'm, I'm not into this comparison. I, I tell people all the time, there's two battles going on in humanity. And I know what team I'm on. <laughs> this is the funny way of putting it. But it's those people who believe it's us versus them and those people who believe it's just us. Right. At the end of the day, before I'm a Democrat, I'm an American. And that's why I work across the aisle so much. Because there's something happening in our country right now where we don't care wrong or right. We care left or right. I want I Team America to thrive. And we need more people talking about what's best for us as a people and stop demonizing, stop this culture of contempt, stop the hate, stop tearing each other down, because that's the rot and the cancer that threatens our nation more but than to me, that, That's fine. But who do you hold most responsible for that? The politicians on Capitol Hill or the pundits who cover them? Because no. I got to tell you, I see the politicians acting worse than the pundits. Some of them. Some of them. I mean, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Well, you and I both played ball before, brother. And I, that's and this right. Gets me. My coach would never have let me get away. With blaming the refs. Yeah. With blaming fair. what the other team did. Fair, fair, fair. Never let me get away fair. with that. Fair. We are here because folk took responsibility. They didn't point fingers. If you want a better democracy, make it so. If you if you want more justice in this world, be a justice fighter. If you want more hope, be an agent of hope. I'm not blaming Republicans 
Yeah. Right now, again, I'm with Martin Luther King. The greatest threat to this country is not what the what the other side is doing. If you're us versus them, well, not what that party's doing. I'm more concerned about the folk who don't understand their power and have yes. surrendered to cynicism. And cynicism is a refuge for cowards. Those folks who don't step up and say, I'm responsible for this country, that I can play a role in this. I am not going to complain more than I help. I'm not going to lie to you. That's one of the reasons I'm interviewing you. That's one of the listen, I'm a sports guy for crying out loud. I got my own podcast and I'm interviewing politicians now all the time. For some reason, y'all like talking to me and I love it because I love talking to y'all. You know, I just love it, you know, and I learn more and more every day and it edifies me and it inspires me not only to, to go out there and learn even more, but to contribute to making the difference. And one of the ways you do that, one of the things that I do, I always encourage people to vote. I never t- I never encourage indifference or apathy of any kind because I'm like, that's not the way to create change the number one tool to create change in this country has been voting and making change that way having said that i will say this to you um you're a senator you wanted to become president that didn't work out are you are you going to run for president again are you going to set your sights on 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 on, on office because i'm looking at a guy like joe biden and i've been on the record i'm going to say this in front of you in all honesty and i've said this publicly I think that the Democratic Party, and I've used these words, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not aiming it to anybody specifically, but I said the Democratic Party should be ashamed of itself because you pride yourself on being progressives, but you're relying on an 82-year-old at the time of election to win re-election, where he'll be in office from 80 from the age of 82. And if God bless him, hope he stays alive and he's well and all that stuff, 86 years of age. How in God's name are we in that kind of predicament in the year 2023 where you're relying on an 82 year old man to come to the rescue to defeat a former president that's got like 91 counts of federal charges against him for crying out loud? How the hell did that happen? Said in the book, I, I, I just need an explanation. So I just need an explanation. And I'm going to tell you too this, man, this is because, you know, this too. I have seen brothers in the boxing ring to in a huddle uh, uh, leading a team down a field that are too geriatric old, but are still knocking brothers out. Okay. So I'm 40 years old, 40, 45 years old. Okay. I, I, you and I both know I was in black church. Good, come back. I was George Foreman. I was in yeah, George <laughs> Foreman. I was in a black church in North Carolina. And right. the pastor's like, okay, it's birthday, stand up. And this like person stands up. And I'm like, that person looks like they're 80 something years old. That brother was 59 years old. And, and, and I was like, whoa, they look, they look a lot older than that. And then somebody stands up and they're like, it's my 90th birthday. And I'm like, the devil is a liar. This person looks too damn good to be 90 years old. So you and I both know there is a spread. And, and everybody's obsessed with a number. And that doesn't tell the whole story. This is what I know about Joe Biden. Because you, I, I'm a human being. When I'm hanging out with him, I'm looking close. That's right. <laughs> does he still have it? Is he is he listening to me? Can he hear me? Is he gonna doze off on me? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm human. I want right. to see right. if this guy can roll with me. And I've sat up in the Oval Office, and he's known more about facts than people on his staff does. He physically, look, I'll play one on one with him. He wants to challenge me to a push up contest. I'll take you That's on, right. Joe Biden. That's right. But That's his right. intellectual rigor is 100% there. And so that's all I'm saying is this. I know a couple things. I have no disrespect to the legacy of Ronald Reagan. 
Mm-hmm. But the stories I've heard about his, his the state of his mental conditioning in the second term, uh, I, I, I think that's right to question that. But this guy, I don't see any deterioration. But what I do see is a proven record. The biggest infrastructure act uh, 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 in, in this country's history, investing in ourselves. The biggest science and technology bill, investing in ourselves. The first gun bill that actually helped save lives already, investing in communities from Atlanta to Newark, to all the cities we've been talking about. He has a record. I've seen no intellectual diminution. And as much as I will tell you, you asked me a direct question, I'm thinking about running for president again in the future because of the same issue I ran in the last time. I want this country's too much at its throat. The biggest threat to America is us tearing each other apart, not any external threat. There's nothing we can't do from defy gravity and go to the moon to beat the Nazis when we're together. And right now we're the least together we have been in generations. But when it comes to Joe Biden stepping up, I'm not concerned about his age because I have not seen anything as a guy who actually works with the president. I haven't seen anything that makes me say I can't support this guy. How scared? I would run against him if I didn't think he 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 was he he could carry us over and win against Donald Trump. And I know Mm. there's a lot of other people, a lot of other Democrats Mm. that that are ready, young horses that have stepped Mm. back and said that that, that let the old lion finish finish what he started because he hasn't shown any diminution. Senator, how scared are you that Donald Trump is going to win re-election? I I look. I underestimated Donald Trump once. I, I'm, I'm with a lot of folks thinking he couldn't win in, like he did in 2016. And then I still hope for the best because I'm a prisoner of hope. And I watched, I watched him inflame rape, this country in a bitter, bitter, bitter partisanship. I watched him stand up on his day he, he came into office and he didn't talk about how special this nation is. He talked about American carnage. And, and so I saw four years of Donald Trump and I travel around the world and see how world leaders of all types are terrified that he might have another four years because of what he will do to the international order. So I, I definitely am going to do everything I can to, to fight for my country because I feel like Donald Trump, <laughs> what he's done to this democracy is dangerous and what he would do if he got another four years. And he's telling us what he would do. So I, I don't I, I don't think he'll govern. I think that if he wins re-election, his entire focus will be on vengeance. It will be on vengeance against everyone who went against him, Democrat or Republican, because I believe that he's that narcissistic. I can't even get to his policies. I'm thinking about I view this, the presidency as statesmanship. Conducting yourself in a fashion that says I'm here for all Americans, not just the ones who voted for me. And I don't view him as being that kind of person. And as a result of that, I don't I think that we'll have I I think I literally believe if he's reelected, it'll be a civil war in this country. Now, that doesn't sound like the, you know, hope and exuberance that Senator Booker preaches about. And and uh, and obviously advocate strongly. It's more gloom and doom, but I also think it's apropos when it comes to him. Do you think that's appropriate for me to say? I I I I will never say the certitude of violence, and I and I always think our institutions, like Chance the Rapper, don't believe in the king, believe in the kingdom. I I believe that in, in the in the I believe in this republic, and I believe in its resiliency. It survived four years of Donald Trump, and I would hope that. He will test us, strain us, but I hope we're bigger. But I don't want to have to go through that stress test again. Neither do we. 
I don't Neither want most of us. Yeah. I, and, I'll say that. But but let me ask you this. I'm gonna go issue by issue real quick, get try to get some quick responses from you here before you go. Gun control. It's been virtually impossible, it seems, to pass sensible gun legislation in this country. Why is that and how does that get rectified? I mean, I mean, the strongest nation in the world, strongest nation in the world now tells our children, because we have more active shooter drills in America than we have fire drills, now tells its children's implicit message, we can't protect you. So in schools every day across America, we're going to teach you how to hide. If, you, if that's not a surrender, so we are, we are in a crisis because there's a fe- fear is a cancer and it erodes the well-being of any society. And we live in a fear-based society now because people are afraid to go to their malls, they're afraid to go to uh, uh, concerts, they're afraid to go to church without thinking to themselves what might happen. We're going to win on this issue. When I say we, the forces of safety and security that believe that we should not have these kind of mass shootings and this kind of violence. Because the majority of us already agree in common sense things that would protect our lives. So if you ask me what it's going to take, unfortunately, it's going to take more and more people when they go to the polls and say, I might not like this person on this side, but here's the party I'm going to vote for that believes in democracy. Here's the party that I'm going to vote for that believes in common sense gun safety laws that 70 to 90 percent of Americans agree on. People have to start voting for their safety. Because in this case, those who are defending the issues, defending the status quo, are culpable in the levels of violence. Those people who have real ideas to change it are going to make you safer, and you should vote for the safety of your community. What about the issue of uh, illegal immigration and our borders? When we have immigrants coming over, you see the city of New York. Uh, Mayor Adams complained about, you know, the influx of, of, of immigrants coming into the city. We saw uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida and Governor Abbott in Texas literally flying immigrants to certain cities. One time they sent it to the vice, vice president's home for crying out loud. Madam Vice President Harris. Um, what about that? What about folks that look at the Democratic Party and say a bit too soft on that wall, a bit too soft on immigration policy? What do you say to that? I, I just say that we got to stop talking at each other and fear mongering and exploiting this horrific issue for political gain. I'm tired of the finger pointing. Both parties are in, are implicated in this situation. And there's just a bunch of stupidity going on, like letting people come in for asylum, but not letting them work. Mm. You could clear out a significant number of the people out of the New York City shelters if you just said all the people who are looking for folks to do jobs that Americans mostly do not want to do, let them have work permits while they're waiting their asylum uh, uh, adjudication. Should we secure our border? Democrats should be stepping up right away and saying, absolutely. You know why? It's a human rights issue. There's a Mm. passageway in which people are, are one of this main thoroughfares that people are trying to cross our borders. These immigrants are dying. They're dying in the desert. We need to protect our borders so they know this is not a viable way to get through. You cannot penetrate in the ways of these mules and others. So creating some kind of, and it's not going to be a wall all the way across. That's, you know, 10th century technology. There's ways if we are willing to make the investment And then we've got to improve our asylum system. Nobody should be waiting months or years to be adjudicated. We need to put a lot of more resources there. Mm. And then we've got to stop the lies. I went out to work. What lies? I went out to work with 
I went out to work with uh, uh, farm workers, the, 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 the farm workers union in America, their biggest farm workers union in America asked, challenged all hundred senators to work side by side with a, with a, with a labor on a farm. Only me and Padilla in California said we do it. And it was, and I'm, I, shoot, I used to squat 600 pounds, bench three, 400 pounds. I, I'm a strong guy. I got a, right. I'm still a pretty good uh, a guy for a middle-aged man, but it was the hardest work I've done in a long time, sweating in the hot sun. Mm-hmm. Most of the women, most of the women that I was working with, all un, undocumented, all, talking about the kind of sexual harassment they face, the wage theft they face. And I remember coming in and talking to one of the organizers and said, look, they said to me, look, they keep we, for the, the food systems in America. There's always been people who have no political representation or power. Mm-hmm. And so the lie that I'm talking about is the fact that most Americans don't realize most of the food that we're consuming is being harvested by people who are undocumented immigrants who we turn around and try to pretend like this, these mm-hmm. things aren't going on, this exploitation of labor. Got it. We need to create fair, just legal systems that doesn't have our businesses violating the law from meat packers to, to, to our farms. This is not a complicated problem. People are exploiting it politically. And the crazy thing is, is we are a nation now suffering because we don't have enough labor. Think about this. I had the president of Stanford University, my alma mater, come in here and say, I have people coming into our country getting degrees in things that half of Congress can't spell, and we don't let them stay here. We kick them out of the country. We need agricultural workers. We need tech workers. We need we, we have a, uh, just like Europe and China right now, their demographic, their birth rates are going down. They need labor. Canada's cleaning our clot right now when it comes to right. bringing in immigrants. So this is not a controversial issue. Everybody's making it to be. Mm-hmm. And it's not this zero-sum game where the Republicans are all wrong and the Democrats are all right or vice versa. There's a way to do this that will help to make us far economically stronger, protect human rights and human dignity. Keep America being that proud country that the Statue of Liberty proclaims that so much of us, except for Black folks and Native American folks, we got here because we were a nation that knew we were going to build this nation on the Mm. best immigration, grittiest, toughest, hardest people all around the planet. I'm tired of people casting these our, our, our political divide in this country as some binary good versus evil, us versus them. Every one of these issues, there's a lot more common sense that could get us through these issues that people are allowing. Yeah. And if we keep fueling this beast that, that is just about us versus them, we're never going to really solve these problems and find common ground. Well, they're fueling it because they're trying to get the seats and it's all about getting that power. And that's really what this comes down to. Let me transition to my wheelhouse before I let you get on out of here, because recently you introduced a bipartisan discussion draft of legislation along with Senators Richard yes. Blumenthal and uh, Jerry Moran that would set national standards for name, image, and likeness deals for college athletes called the College Athletes Protection and Compensation Act. Your former tight end, if I remember correctly, at Stanford University, you're an all-academic team, all of this other stuff, but you played football, you just talked about how strong you are, how athletic you are, how much you care about sports and all that. I mean, I want you to tell me about this and why you felt it was needed. First of all, the older I get, the better I was. So stipulate. <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the feeling. <laughs> anything I brag about on here, you just stipulate that it might be. Uh, uh, and uh, my, my, I'm not that old, but my recollection might need some refreshing. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, no question. But this goes to the point. Like everybody thinks, oh, politics. I don't want to get. 
politics. This is the sacred civic space that touches every aspect of your life, from the food you eat to what you watch on television to the laws governing your credit card. And, and sports is the same way. You, you know this. It was an yeah. American president that saved American football because people were dying. And he said, we got to create, that was a precursor to the NCAA. And right. so I came to the, the here thinking, this is crazy. $15 billion industry, college sports, $15 billion. And all the people working in the fields and working on the courts that generate this revenue, we're seeing pretty much none of it. And then the stories I know from playing friends of mine who are going in their pocket to pay for injuries that they receive putting butts in seats when they play. Think about this, knee injuries, spine injuries, head injuries. 20 years later, I've got to pay for that, even though I made millions of dollars for the university? Or how about this? They talk about the graduation rates for, if you disaggregate the data and look at the graduation rates, it's damn only about 50% of black athletes are even getting their degree. And then if they want to come back a few years later, after they maybe tried in the pros or what have you, they have to go in their pocket to pay for those last credits. So I knew that there was a lot of stuff about the NCAA that was just dead wrong. When you have people like Shabazz Napier saying, I can't even afford to eat yeah, because of the laws of the NCAA. When, when there are kids that play out in California, their family lives on the East Coast, they can't even fly their parents out. They're selling their jersey with their name on it for more money in the school bookstore than their parents make in a day's labor. Yeah. So we knew we had to change the system to protect athletes' health, to protect athletes' education, to do the things the NCAA would give lip service to, but wouldn't deliver on. Now, the new NCAA head, I'm so proud of him. He's talking to these issues. We're in dialogue. A lot of the different league heads were in dialogue. Yes. This is a bipartisan athletes' bill of rights, a bipartisan discussion document that we want to create really some rules to the game around NIL, create a, a national governing body that can start doing a with teeth to hold people accountable. Because there's no enforcement, and there's no enforceable standards right now for concussion, for sexual assault. Imagine you're a coach on the sideline, your quarterback just gets his bell rung, the game is on the line, millions of dollars at stake. You know he's not 100% ready to go back in, but heck, there's no consequences for him sending that guy back in, even though he knows his health mm. is at stake. Wow. So this is a smart draft that makes the game a lot fairer for the people that actually play it. And we have the power in Congress to do something about it because we give exemptions to antitrust laws to let the elite. Yes, you do. And Baseball and enjoyed it for decades. And now, obviously, all the sports have it to some degree. And I think the NCAA is really, really smart. They're a bit late to the party. They've got new leadership. I get that. But literally Capitol Hill has to get involved because yeah. the NCAA has been getting over like bandits for years and the kids are not having it anymore. And now you're going to see that they're looking for assistance from the government yes. because they know it's getting out of control. Their intent is something I question, but their actions in terms of literally provoking your involvement, I have no problem with because it's desperately needed. It's long overdue. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Look, Sen the, the players groups who we're working with, they're not asking for the moon. They're asking for just what I think is just justice. And imagine this, like, especially in today's day and age with these digital devices, you could be in a room before the NIL rules started moving where yep. your roommate has a Twitter feed about you that he's monetizing because everybody wants to know what's the insight, but you get on that same feed and you're suddenly ineligible. So we, we've got to create rule. Now, listen, it can't be the wild, wild west. Of right? course not. Hackwurch. 
of different states have different laws, different di leagues, different divisions. We're creating, I think, these inducements they're giving athletes to sign on is, is undermining the game. There's got to be some rules for the road um, that make the game competitive because what's happening in college sports right now, I'm really worried. The almighty dollar has already destroyed the Pac-10. I mean, think about the, the lore from uh, 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 UCLA basketball when you and I were growing up to, to even, even modern day rivalries uh, 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 of Stanford, the greatest team ever to grace a football field versus USC. Um, the, to see that the way that the mighty dollar is, is, is causing our traditions, the heritage of our country to erode all these things, I, I think that's problematic. But at the end of the day, I, I'm fighting for the athletes, for their health, education, and well-being. Well, let me say this. Senator Cory Booker is fighting for, for far more folks than the athletes. I appreciate your work. I appreciate your service to this country, the great job that you've been doing. I don't agree with everything Democratic. You know that. You know, I, I got my issues, okay? Hey, I don't but, agree but, with everything in the Democratic Party either. <laughs> but I really, I really I appreciate you. And Stephen, you know this. We all, coalitions are important. If everybody in your coalition agrees on everything, your coalition isn't big enough. Right. You, you need to find ways to create common ground with people that you disagree with. And the problem we have right now, and this is why I love sports. This is why I love the world you're in. Because what I learned on Stanford football is I was bleeding next to a guy who identified as a Republican and conservative, yes, but I, I saw their humanity. We're in the same trench, going through the same uh, three days in August. And we have failed. Somehow we've stopped seeing each other's shared humanity. You travel mm -hmm. on planes all the time. I do. I get recognized from time to time. I sit down next to this woman, an 80-year-old, 60-year-old mother and daughter. Everybody's being nice to me. They don't know who I am. They're like, who are you? And, I, and, and they assume a big black guy. They go, are you a professional athlete? And I look at her and I go, I could be. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I, I say, no, ma'am, I'm a United States citizen. She, right. Immediately, she wanted to know what tribe I'm in. Are you a right. Democrat or Republican? I go, ma'am, I'm a Democrat. And suddenly she looks at me angrily. She says, I should have brought my Trump hat. And wow. I could have played that. I could have played that. I'm not going to dance to that tune. Right. I'm not going to give in to this binary view of the world. I looked at her and I go, Donald Trump, he signed two of the biggest bills I wrote into law. And I explained the bills. And she was shocked that I was saying complimentary things about him, that, he would, right. that I worked with him. Before right. you know it, by the time the plane landed, we weren't on polar opposites. We weren't left and right, red and blue. We were Americans sharing stories about our grandparents and our children and our, our shared culture. We have so much more in common. Sports, to me, is one of those binding things in our culture where people can become friends with you even, and then suddenly realize, as much as I may say I hate Republicans or hate Democrats, right. I, I see your humanity. Maybe we do have a lot more common. Maybe My we have the makings to, 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 to build a strong platform to make this nation thrive into the next generation. My very last question to you, who's the Republican on Capitol Hill that most reminds you of you? Oh, wow. Based on what you just described and what your hope is, what your hope is for this nation, who's the guy on the opposite side of the aisle who speaks that specific language? Listen, I've joked about this a lot, I, I, that if I could do a, unifying ticket for this country, I would have Mitt Romney be my vice president and try to say, listen, America, we have a lot of disagreements, but here's two guys that believe that we agree on 70% of the stuff. Let's work together on that stuff. Mitt Romney's a, a, a really a decent guy and I've, yeah. I've been blessed. And an elder, he's a senior statesman down here. 
And I feel blessed to have gotten to know him. Yeah. Senator Cory Booker, I'm blessed to have this conversation with you. I hope it's one of many. You know you're always welcome. I can't wait to meet you face-to-face sometime in the very near future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your service to this country. Hey, I really appreciate it. Tell me my Giants are going to have a good season. That fluke against I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not going to tell you that. But I will say this. Yeah. I'm stunned, stunned that they came back from that huge deficit yeah. against Arizona and yes. won the game. But, but, but. Come on. They, they, they still need, listen, they, there's, there's hope. Listen, they got more hope than the Jets because the Jets lost Aaron Rodgers. Oh. And they got Zach Wilson. So they're going to have more hope than the Jets. That I can give you. I can't give you more than that. Can't give you more than that. All right. And what do you think Take about you. my man in Colorado? I, I, my, my last vestiges of the, of the pack. Of the Pac-10, I, my standard three, so I got a root for Colorado what, now. What what Deion Sanders has done is miraculous. It's undeniable. It's sensational. He's the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL. Uh, a special teamer, kick returner, punt returner, wide receiver, baseball yeah. player. Yeah. Uh, the guy's phenomenal, but he's such a motivator, and he's so committed to coaching kids and going to Boulder, Colorado. There's not that many black folks out there. Let's just call it what it is. Yeah. And uh, But they're coming now. Um, I've been at two of his games, okay? And he's doing a sensational job. And to come from an HBCU senator yes. to do what he's done, there's only one Deion Sanders, and I get that. Yes. But what I'm asking people to pay attention to are the coaches he's brought from HBCUs, the players he's brought from HBCUs, yeah. how they're looking, especially his son, both of his sons, I might add, along with Travis Hunter and others, how they're looking in D1, big time, big five competition. It To me, it's going to open the doors and force evaluators, not just at those pristine, predominantly white institutions, but also on the NFL level, evaluators to look at talent from the HBCUs and say, wait a minute, we might have misjudged them, miscalculated these guys can indeed perform at this level. We can't judge them about being so superior against the competition they're going against. They're worthy of being on this level. Okay, I got a blue devil right here. All she wants to tell you is don't sleep on Duke this year, 3-0. That's all she wants football? to Football? Don't football. Don't sleep on Duke. Don't sleep on Duke, Duke football. I won't snore. Tell I, tell I won't snore. I won't <laughs> snore. Okay, tell I won't do that. I appreciate you, Senator. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Take you. care now. God bless. All right. Many thanks to the one and only Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker. Thanks for watching another episode of the Stephen A. Smith Show. I'm here at the very least every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday over the digital airways of YouTube. Make sure to like and follow the Stephen A. Smith Show right here on YouTube. Click the bell to get notified for all of our new content and be sure to pick up a copy of my New York Times bestseller, Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. Until next time, this is Stephen A. Smith signing off. Peace and love, everybody. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts.